Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 as we continue our series in this magisterial epistle to the church at Rome. Uh, This morning, uh, we will look once again at verses 11 through 24 as we consider part two of this message on the kindness and severity of God. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word if you are able. Romans 11 and beginning in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature wild, a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, as we come to your word, we come humbly, and we ask that you would, by your spirit, illumine our hearts and minds, that we would believe your word and respond to it by faith in Christ. And seek to live accordingly with thankful hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. In C.S. Lewis's famous work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a memorable scene that many of you will know where Susan Pevensey is engaged in a serious conversation with Mr. Beaver. They are in Narnia, and Susan is inquiring about Aslan, the Christ figure of the story. She's asking about him. She's inquiring about who he is exactly. Mr. Beaver said to Susan, quote, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. 
who said anything about safe. Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Dear ones, through this profound description of Aslan, we are reminded of what the Bible teaches us about God. And he is not safe, but he is good. It's what the Apostle Paul highlights in our passage for this morning, isn't it? When he writes in verse 22, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Dear ones, God is both kind and severe. He is both loving and wrathful. God is merciful and he is just. He is the God of everlasting salvation and he is the God of everlasting judgment. Beloved, this is the God of Scripture in all of his glory and not the safe and controllable God imagined by sinful men and taught in liberal seminaries and churches. No, he is the sovereign and majestic king who reigns in the heavens, who dwells in unapproachable light and executes his holy decrees. Amen? This is the God of Scripture, the one true and living God that we worship this morning. As Psalm 115 verse 3 proclaims, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Do you believe that? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Doing what he pleases, of course, includes his sovereign purpose of election. Election of the remnant of Israel as well as a great number of Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Behind all saving faith is the purpose, power, and invisible hand of our sovereign God. Let me say that again. Behind all saving faith is the purpose, power, and invisible hand of our sovereign God. Remember Romans 9, verses 15 and 16. Quote, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But some in the church of Rome had questions about God's saving purpose, especially concerning Israel. Had God rejected Israel completely for their rebellion? There also appeared to be a growing pride among the Gentile believers in Rome, thinking too highly of themselves, thinking pridefully towards Israel. You see, as in any church today, people had questions about the sovereign purpose of God. And also, as in any church today, they had insecurities and doubts and fears in relation to God's mysterious work of redemption. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, therefore, the Apostle Paul sought to give clear answers. He sought to bring clarity, while also recognizing that there is a limit to what we can know about the mysterious and inscrutable ways of God. After all, he is the holy, infinite, omniscient, 
omnipotent and all-wise God. And we are but finite, sinful creatures. Acknowledging this reality is central to living a life of humble trust in God and in his word. Well, last week we began to unpack these verses here in verses 11 through 24. It's not an easy section uh, to understand, but we learned first of all last week that Israel's rebellion against God led to an open door of salvation to the Gentiles. This rebellion of Israel is seen all throughout the Old Testament right up to Paul's day in the first century. Even so, Israel's rebellion did not stifle God's purpose of election. Indeed, it only highlighted it. For Israel's rejection of the promises of God in Christ was a catalyst for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 again. Though Israel's tres- excuse me, through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their trespass means riches for the Gentiles. Again, according to God's sovereign purpose and providence, the nation of Israel's perennial idolatry and rejection of the gospel opened the door of salvation to the Gentile nations. Secondly, we learn that the large influx of Gentiles into the kingdom of God was intended to make Israel jealous so that some of them will come to saving faith in the Messiah. Paul writes in verse 13 that, quote, as an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. Why? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Remember, Paul was in anguish over the lost condition of his countrymen. He yearned for their salvation and hoped that the flood of Gentiles being saved and becoming a part of the people of God would rattle them, would get their attention and make them jealous so that some of them would embrace their Messiah. It wasn't an exact scenario like this, but I remember some time ago when living in Douglasville, Georgia, there was a a huge massive storm. There was massive flooding everywhere. Homes were destroyed People died. It was an extraordinary storm. And I'll never forget that after this storm, there was one family who lived just a couple doors down. Uh, They were in our church. In fact, uh, um, uh, the man was an elder in our church. And the entire bottom half of his home was completely destroyed. And so... Several families, as you would expect, uh, showed up from the church. There must have been 25 or 30 people there to rip out drywall, uh, to throw garbage into uh, the large dumpster. Uh, We sang psalms together. We prayed together. We laughed together. We cried together. It was an extraordinary time. It was all day. It was wonderful. And I'll never forget hearing a few days later that another neighbor who had some damage done to their house. I didn't know anything about it until later. And had, and had knew this family had expressed through tears what they had seen happening at his house. They drove by and saw what was going on. And you know what their response was? Because these people were unchurched. They said, we have nothing like that in our lives at all. 
We have no support like that. We have no one to care for us like that. And there's a sense in which, as Christians, we want the world to know us by our what? Our love for one another. And so part of our witness, part of the light that we shine into the world, into the culture, is the love and the mutual encouragement and upbuilding that we uh, experience and have here at Christ Church. And, 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 and for Christians in all local branches of the church of Jesus Christ. But here we recognize Paul's um, argument here that the salvation of the Gentiles is intended to make the Jews jealous because of the blessings, the kingdom blessings that the Gentiles are experiencing under the one true covenant-keeping God. A third thing we learned last week from this text was Paul's admonition to the Gentiles that they would not be arrogant toward the Jews. Paul reminded them that God's covenant promises to Israel are the roots that support them. They have been grafted into the people of God by God's sovereign grace. Thus they should, quote, not become proud, but fear. For as Paul warns in verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. It could be said to us, if God does not spare unbelieving Jews, why would he spare unbelieving Gentiles? The kindness and the severity of God. That's our focus for this morning from verses 22 to 24. Severity towards those who have fallen in sin and unbelief, but kindness towards undeserving sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ. There are two headings for this morning. First of all, we have a portrait of the kindness of God, and secondly, a portrait of the severity of God in which we will see a portrait of the gospel. First of all, portrait of the kindness of God. God's kindness is exhibited all throughout Romans chapters 9 through 11, especially in reference to his electing love. His compassion and saving mercies are profoundly undeserved, and yet he pours them out abundantly. Sadly, however, the doctrine of divine election often generates more angst and speculation than wonder and praise. One reason for this is that we generally have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of God. Uh, We think that our sin is not that bad, And God's justice is not that strict. At the end of the day, we think we are entitled to God's blessings, entitled even to heaven itself. However, when we have a proper view of man's guilt and a right view of God's unbending justice, only then do we recognize our helplessness and our profound need for divine mercy. Only then do we cry out like the publican, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Only then do we see our need for Christ's sacrificial death and hell-vanquishing resurrection to rescue and redeem us. And dear ones, it's only by grasping these things that we begin to further understand and appreciate the kindness of God that Paul directs our attention to in verse 22. Notice, Notice Paul begins verse 22 with the phrase, Note then. 
Note then the kindness of God. And here Paul is summarizing what he has been explaining in the previous verses. That God has sovereignly chosen a remnant by grace in Israel. And has also sovereignly grafted in Gentiles like wild branches into the people of God. Election, therefore, is a portrait of the kindness of God because we don't deserve it. We don't come close to deserving it. We deserve the opposite of it. And no one would be saved without this kindness of God in his election. The Greek word for kindness that Paul employs here is a relational term. It's a term of affection. One commentator states that, quote, God's kindness is associated in Jewish and early Christian tradition with his forbearance, patience, generosity, mercy, and love. Let me read that again in case you have a view of God as one who just wants to smash you at every turn. God's kindness is associated in Jewish and early Christian tradition with his forbearance, patience, generosity, mercy, and love. Is this how you think of God? Is this how you think of God? As forbearing, patient, generous, merciful, and loving towards his redeemed children. Paul tells you to note then the kindness of God. The gospel declares the kindness of God, that he spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, and that in Christ he will graciously give us all things that we need for life and salvation. It is God's kindness, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 4, that is meant to lead us to what? To repentance. To repentance. It's his kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance and keep us in that posture of repentance our whole lives long. God's kindness then is seen so clearly in his salvation. But dear ones, his severity is also made clear in his just judgment. And this brings us to our second heading, a portrait of the severity of God. God's judgment is severe. It is strict. It is exacting. It is holy. And we should never attempt to explain it away to make ourselves or others more comfortable or to make God more safe. Dear ones, God is not a half-senile and doting grandfather in the sky, ignoring the sins of his creatures. He is the holy and everlasting God. He is righteous and just. He's the, the maker of the heavens and the earth. He sits on the throne of righteousness and judgment in heaven, surrounded by the cherubim and seraphim, those fiery spirits who declare his praise day and night. The earth is the Lord's and everything therein. He does all that pleases him. He is God. He is righteous and just and thus cannot allow one sin, even the smallest sin, to go unaccounted for. 
Isn't this the message we receive from all of the Bible? God is a God of grace. Yes, but he is also a God of judgment. Think about the flow of redemptive history. Think about all the stories you learned growing up in church or perhaps that you're learning now. In the book of Genesis, we have the flood. Salvation for Noah and his family. But judgment for the world. How about in the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea? Salvation for Israel, judgment for the Egyptian army. How about the story of David and Goliath? Salvation for Israel and for David and judgment for Goliath and the Philistines. Think about God's own covenant people who in the northern kingdom in 722 were attacked and destroyed by the nation of Assyria whom God himself raised up to bring judgment against his own wicked and idolatrous people. Or later in 586, God raising up Babylon to bring judgment against his own people in Judah and the southern kingdom. On and on and on and on and on we could go with the Bible's clear revelation that God is a God of kindness, but also a God of severity. Look with me again at verse 22. Note then the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen. Beloved, while the Bible teaches this point all over its pages again and again, it is too often disregarded in our pulpits, in our living rooms, and in our thinking. And by ignoring this truth about God, we not only dishonor Him and present a false view of Him as less than holy, but we also demean the work of Christ. We diminish what God the Father has done for us and depreciate the depths to which Christ suffered for our sins. You see, Christ himself experienced the severity of God in all of its fury and indignation when he bore our sin and the lashes on his back. When for our transgressions a crown of thorns was pressed upon his brow and a reed mockingly placed in his hand. When for our sakes iron stakes were hammered through his wrists and feet, fastening him to a Roman cross, shamefully crucified between two thieves. Jesus bore the severity and judgment of God, becoming sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God, that we would be forgiven, robed in divine righteousness and reconciled to God forever, no longer under his wrath, no longer in the bondage of sin, but under his grace and set free from sin and ushered into glory. No longer under his wrath, but under his kindness and under his mercy. Beloved, Christ went through the wrath of God and the severity of God for you. He bore the severity and judgment of God on the cross so that 
you and I, by his grace, would never have to. Recently, I've been slowly reading through Calvin's sermons on Matthew 26 through 28. In a sermon I was reading this week, the Genevan reformer crystallizes the gospel by bringing out some of the same points that I believe are made here in our text. Listen to what Calvin says. He quotes Isaiah 53, 12, that he was numbered among the transgressors. Then he says, Now if he had not been numbered thus, what would have been our place and standing in God's sight? We cannot obtain grace without righteousness. God must hate us and reject us until we are righteous before him and cleansed of all our sins and stains. Can God deny himself? Can he divest himself of his holiness, righteousness, and justice? As long as we bring him only our defilement, we must be abhorrent to him. How then could we be justified before him if Jesus Christ had not been numbered among the transgressors? He then says, we are thus delivered from our condition. God receives us and accepts us as if we were pure and blameless because our Lord Jesus Christ suffered such shame and humiliation in the eyes of men, this is what we are to remember. Dear ones, this is gospel. The kindness and the severity of God meeting at the cross, kissing at the cross, the love and the justice of God. Because God did not come one inch off of his holiness when he offers us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That holiness, that righteousness was satisfied. All the requirements of God's law were satisfied. All of his wrath and the debt of what we owed was satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, especially as it concerns the gospel. Paul emphasizes God as both just and justifier in the third chapter of Romans. Please turn there with me to Romans chapter 3. A central passage in the book of Romans that we reference time and again for good reason. In verses 9 through 18, of course, Paul quotes numerous Old Testament passages to underscore the depravity of both Jew and Gentile, the utter depravity and helplessness of both Jew and Gentile to save themselves. The law was not given so that we could obey it and gain acceptance with God. The law was given to show us our sin and our need for Christ. The law was given that our mouths would be shut before God and that we would look to Christ for redemption. And so it says in verse 19, after Paul gives this long explanation about how none is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God, no one is good. He then says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped 
No more excuses. No more justifications. Just stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, law is like a mirror. And when we look into the mirror, we see all of our flaws, all of our sins. And we see our great need for a Savior who is righteous and who will pay the debt of our sins. And then in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's the gift of righteousness that is revealed in the gospel. The gift of righteousness in Christ and received through faith. It's for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, God the Father, put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God doesn't relax his standards. He doesn't set aside his righteousness so that we could be accepted. He pours out his wrath upon his son on the cross at Calvary. To pay for your sin and my sin. That is the kindness and the severity of God at the cross. But you see, if you are outside of Christ, if you reject him, if you do not believe in him, you will know only the severity of God. You will be fallen. And you will remain under his wrath. And one day at the judgment, you will stand before him naked and with only your filthy rags of your own half-baked righteousness to offer him. However, if you are in Christ, if you've called upon the name of the Lord by his grace and are saved, you will stand before him, not dressed in the tattered robes of your own filthy so-called righteousness. You will stand before him forgiven of those tattered robes of sin and filthy righteousness and robed in the very righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You will be accepted. You will be acquitted. You will be ushered in to heaven forever. And so we say with the hymn writer, We are dressed in the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. That is our glorious dress. That is our beauty. And we do not wear it with pride and arrogance. We wear it with deep gratitude, love, and humility. You see, by way of application of this section of God's word, Arrogance and pride are never the fruit of saving faith. And whenever we exhibit it, and every one of us in this room do from time to time, we repent, we acknowledge it, and we do not live in that pattern. Arrogance and pride are never the fruit of faith. Humility and fear of God are always the fruit of saving faith. 
Therefore, may we not be like those Gentiles who were looking down on Israel and thinking highly of themselves in relation to their place in the kingdom of God. For God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance and humility, not arrogance. And dear ones, not continuing in God's kindness, not abiding in his mercy, and not persevering in the faith are signs of unbelief and indications of being under God's future severity and judgment. And apostasy, dear ones, does not mean that salvation was lost, but that it was never possessed in the first place. So take note. Take note, the apostle says, of the kindness and the severity of God. And may it point us ultimately to Christ, to the forgiveness of sins, to his gift of righteousness and to everlasting life. May it lead us to a close and endearing walk with God by grace through faith in Christ. So much of this, which we will touch upon again, is dealing with this idea that you can be a Christian and yet look condescendingly down on others and live with arrogance and pride in your so-called faith. But God says this with a warning that should strike fear into our hearts. That if, if God is unwilling to look past the unbelief of his covenant people Israel, he will not overlook the unbelief of Gentiles in the wild olive tree. We are so blessed. God has had mercy on us. Amen. God has shown us his mercy and he pours out upon us grace upon grace. He is so kind to us and we want to continue in that kindness as it states here in our text. We want to continue in that kindness and not in arrogance and pride. Dear ones, let us remember that God is not safe according to the world's ideas, but he is good. And what a privilege and blessing it is to be the objects of our good God's mercy and his kindness in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the riches of this text in Romans 11, the riches of Christ, the one who bore your wrath on Calvary's tree, that we, by your grace, would be set free. O Lord, we pray that this grace would be adorned in our lives, would take root in our lives and adorn us with humility, with gratitude, and with love, that we would not be arrogant and angry and self-righteous, those characteristics which sometimes mark the people of God. And we pray, let Christ Church, that we would be bold, courageous, and compassionate Christians, that we would speak the truth, but we would speak the truth in love, and that we would love one another 
so as to show the world that there's something different about the church, that there is something beautifully strange about the love we have for one another and that they themselves would want it and that you would use that as part of our witness to a lost and dying world. Oh Lord, thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. And we pray in his name.